This is Talk is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of BC, brought to you by Sitka Come along as we bring conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good evening, Gregory. How's it going, my friend? Oh, not bad, Mr. Stelter. How are you? Good. Uh, it's good to get on the, the cast again. It's been a few weeks. We, uh, You just reminded me, Jesse was was on the last one, which was with uh, Dustin from Mountain Tough, uh, which I'm doing their program, by the way, and I'm getting crushed. I'm feeling a little tired tonight, to be honest with you. But uh, yeah. um, You're looking shredded. Cheap shape, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Shred is the key word there. Yeah, not in the not in the traditional sense. Um, but this one I was on solo on with uh, Rick Hansen, and uh, we got to sit down with uh, the man in motion, and man, it was a super cool podcast, super well-spoken dude, and um, just inspirational uh, on two levels. There's the what he's done for disabilities and for uh, awareness around uh, spinal cord injuries, and, and just people with disabilities in general uh just his foundation has raised literally millions and millions of dollars around the world and then on the conservation front which is kind of the main reason i wanted to talk to rick but we spent a lot of this uh, podcast talking about the man in motion tour of course uh as a youngster i i managed to go and see him wheel through as he was on his tour through uh southern alberta and it was just super inspirational i remember it. i was talking to my wife melanie about it and she was like like you mean the man in motion she's like that guy came in the stadium we erupted in cheers it was like phenomenal right so yeah i was uh i'm not gonna lie to you buddy it's a little before my time but uh <laughs> you know that's got to be a pretty powerful experience uh you know local legend he's got a high school that my high school used to compete with when we were younger and it's, you know we we hear about him you see what he what he's done he's you know uh, just a stand-up individual but i don't know how how you can put it into words, how incredible that man is. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the cool thing for me was uh, the connection of conservation and his passion is fishing. But the one thing about Rick on this podcast you'll hear is uh, a lot of what he does is, you know, he, he ties, ties his disability to the outdoors and sports and fishing. Uh, his injury came on the backs of uh, a fishing trip that he was on when he was living in Williams Lake and he was on the way back from a a West Coast fishing trip, and um, yeah, it's and I think he said it's fifty years is the anniversary this year of that accident. So he's accomplished a ton of stuff in his lifetime, and really inspirational guy. And love what he talks about with when it comes to conservation and sturgeon, and of course the Jurassic Classic, which uh, we have our fundraiser there. It's near and dear to my heart, so it's really cool to to touch on that. Yeah, I know it's a, a cool episode because when you when you think Rick Hansen, you don't think conservation or anything to do with the outdoors you're thinking man in motion so it's a, a different perspective and a side of him that no one ever really sees or hears about should be a good good yeah, listen and when you well and that's the thing when you listen to the podcast you, you're like holy that you know it's amazing what he has done in the conservation realm um again his focus has been sturgeon and but he's you know fishing and um, and then just in general conservation in general and wildlife and the outdoors it's a big big attraction and it was funny i was I was uh, up at Shockey's and talking to Jim, and he's like, hey, check this out. And he had pictures of uh, Rick out in the outdoors, recreating and stuff. And Jim was uh, Jim was showing his envy or, I guess, his respect for, for Rick Hansen as well. It was pretty cool. So well, That's that's neat to have a, a fan like Shockey is your, your fan. That's pretty – that'd be pretty cool. 
It's, it says a lot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So something um, something happened last week that uh, you know something big maybe in the society. What do you what do you think happened? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> You're giving us a, giving me a hard time. You're like, yeah, you had the the bloody producer on the podcast on the last one. You guys didn't talk about it. I'm like. <laughs> Well, we're kind of into this fitness thing, but yeah, transmissions live. So, um, yeah, pretty cool. Uh, we released transmission. It was a bit, almost a year ago now. It was April of 2022. We did our first private screening. We've done uh, dozens around the world of private screenings. This is an award-winning film. I think we've won three awards and then uh, nine or ten mentions. Uh, I'm not sure how that works in the media film industry, but um you know, an all-around huge success. The one thing I love about Transmission is the messaging, but the collaboration too. There's so many different entities. We worked with the Wild Sheep Foundation. We had a bunch of chapter and affiliates that supported this. Uh, and the messaging is so strong in it. Uh, it talks about a collaboration with the uh, domestic producing industry. Jennifer Bowes, who's become a close friend of the societies now, the work that she's done as a domestic producer it's just a incredible feel good story in in many ways heart wrenching in others and uh pretty pretty powerful I, I hope our listeners will take the time to to check out it um movifree.org um is the website so head over to movifree.org and check it out the film's there it's free uh it's publicly available now and if you're a conservationist or an outdoor advocate if you care about wild sheep Share it with your friends and family. This is something that's appealing to people outside the hunting community, outside our space, and it's also very impactful. So it could make a difference. You know, the right people see it and they pass it along, and it you know it makes the rounds. It's it's definitely a useful educational piece and something that has been really successful, I think, for the society. Yeah, and uh, you know, the other other weekend we were at the BC Outdoor Show in Chilliwack, and we were playing the uh, transmission trailer on the TV and getting lots of questions about it. And it was, it was nice to finally tell people it's like two days, March 28th, that thing's live. And we're actually, we're getting some messages from people who aren't in our, our world that we're at the outdoor show that now I've watched the film and they're shooting messages to the social media channels saying, Hey, you know, I, I don't know who's behind this channel, but talk to your guys at the booth, watch that film. What a powerful piece of, uh, a powerful piece of art. I don't know how you want to word that, but a great documentary and open their eyes to the struggles of wild sheep in our province. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And you know, this thing, I think maybe the brains behind it was Barker uh, was, this was his vision. And, uh, and then, you know, Sabrina Larson as our EA, she took and ran with it initially working with filter studios and Jesse and Tash and the filter crew just turned this into something that, yeah, it, it's beyond anything I ever envisioned. I, I didn't think we'd be able to create something like this. And uh, it, it's inspiring. It's inspired people around the world. It's, uh, you know, really bridged the gap for domestic producers and the wild sheep community. And there's a lot of really, really good things coming out of it. So um, check it out, movifree.org, worth the watch. Yeah, something something neat a lot of people don't might not know is, uh, you know, Jesse Bone, our director, he wasn't a director when he started that film. And it sucked him in to the sheep world. He's uh, now one of our biggest advocates. The f- being part of that film opened his eyes, and here he is, one of our. I don't know, he's been a director as long as I have now, so three, four years, and he's locked in. Yeah, pretty inspirational for sure. So with that, let's go to episode one twenty two with the man in motion, Rick Hansen. Enjoy. 
This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Gunworks. Thank you Sitka Gear and Gunworks for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Uh, good afternoon, Rick, and welcome to Talk is Sheep. I, I have to say, just so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Kyle. It's an honor to be here. I tell you, I really love what you guys are doing, and it's love to be able to talk about our passion for the outdoors and conservation and everything that this uh, incredible country offers. Awesome, Rick. Um, you know, I guess this year is a, a big anniversary for you on many fronts. I think there's a, a number of things happening, and, you know, maybe we'll start off uh, Rick, I guess maybe talk a little bit about your connection to um, to conservation and a little bit about um, your, you know your passion and where that comes from. I think it came from a very early age with you. Yeah, it sure did. You know, I was born and raised in BC, and so earliest days out with my grandfather and father and cousins, and always fishing, uh, you know, on hikes and involved in the outdoors. You know that they say that in the first six years of your life, your character is largely set up for uh, success in the future. And if that's true, uh, my first six years were idyllic. Uh, it was uh, just one adventure after another. And you, know, you get out on those adventures and you're with your family and, and you're, you know, you're, you're problem solving and, uh, and, and you're talking about life and, and you're getting an appreciation for you know, the magnificence of, uh, of where you live and what you're experiencing and it just gets in your blood. And uh, my whole life revolved around physical activity, the use of my legs and and the outdoors. And of course, uh, one day uh, when I was in grade 10, when we had relocated up into uh, Williams Lake, I decided to go on a nice sort of trip of a lifetime with my buddies. Um, we were going to go uh, into the Bellacoola Valley and fish for salmon. And then we were coming back out and we left our one friend off uh, at his home in the ranch in Clean a Clean in the Chilcotin. And then my friend Don and I decided to hitchhike all the way back to get back to the Williams Lake Stampede and and uh, we were going to have a lot of fun and uh, unfortunately uh, when we were hitchhiking we got a ride in the back of a pickup truck that uh, was destined to roll over and crash and I was caught on the inside of the roll and it broke my back and it uh, damaged my spinal cord and doctors told me I'd never walk again so you know you can imagine uh, how that hits you and and that was a pretty, uh, pretty uh, difficult and challenging day. I thought my whole life was over. Um, life shattered along uh, with my hopes and dreams. Uh, and, uh, and of course, it was, uh, it was all about, well, what do you do now? And uh, fortunately, uh, my family rallied around me and uh, they encouraged me to believe that life was possible. And that maybe what I could do is, uh, you know, start getting back you know, into fishing again and, and the outdoors and hunting and stuff. And they decided that, you know, they could help me and we could modify things and, and piggyback me down into, you know, the Thompson River and fish jack salmon or modify an all-terrain vehicle and get out in, uh, up in the Peace River country. And, and it became uh, my whole sort of pathway to, you know, reclaiming my life again. And it made me realize that, you know, that, I, you know that I didn't need to be cured in order to be whole as a human being. That I could, I could still be the adventurer, the outdoorsman. But I just had to free myself from the old stereotype of having to do it exactly the same way and liberate myself and accept help and modify and think and and still uh, pursue passion and love. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a tough grind in those early days. But it it got me connected and made me realize that I was uh, I was definitely, uh, you know, in a, in a much better place than I could have ever been. 
You know, Rick, for me, it's incredibly inspirational what you've done, both from, you know, an accessibility issue and, and, and your disability issue and the awareness you've, you've drawn there and then on the conservation side. And I want to talk about both, but maybe we'll just talk a little bit about that. So you're a young man at 15 years old. You've lost, uh, you know, use of your legs and you have these mobility challenges. How, how does someone go from there to, you know, the Man in Motion Tour and, and, and even some of the challenges along there? I know the Man in Motion Tour wasn't something like you, that, that grew with you and, you and you grew as a individual. But how do you get to that point where you're like, okay, I'm going to actually change the way the world looks at, um, you know, accessibility issues and, and disabilities. Um, and you've changed hearts and minds and inspired millions of people around the world. Can you just talk about that transition on how you got to that spot? Yeah, Kyle, it's, it's basically focusing on, first of all, you know, your, your pain and your suffering, where it's coming from when you have a trauma like that. And I, I quickly realized after examining scenarios and realizing that most of my pain was coming from the fact that I not not that I couldn't use my legs, but how I viewed my circumstance. And I, I had to populate my, my new life with possibilities. And that was before the information age and uh, technology. So it was really about role models and connecting to people who had been there before, who could sort of show me what life was possibly like. It was about people who took time, like my phys ed coach uh, at, from high school in Williams Lake, Bob Redford, who made me realize that Nowhere in the definition of an athlete does it say that you have to use your legs in order to be one, uh, that Paralympic sport existed. And if you wanted to be an athlete, you know, get in the chair, use your heart and your arms, and it'll take you wherever you want to go. Uh, traveling the world, representing my country, benefiting from so many people who helped me with my goals and dreams. It instills inside you the sense of uh, needing to pay it forward. It's like a responsibility, a, a rite of passage, and uh, and ultimately... Then I think about what I went through in terms of shifting my attitude, um, how I then encountered other people and society that had attitudes about me and my colleagues and friends, and uh, and then the physical barriers that were there. And I thought, well, you know, I, I think what I can do is use my Paralympic skills, my wheelchair marathoning skills, and take on a, a challenge of wheeling around the world and, and, and demonstrate what's possible if barriers are removed. And put a whole different spin in, on the mindset that people look at maybe disability as a, you know, as a sentence, as opposed to a, a new pathway filled with opportunities that people come together to remove barriers. And that, that was the inspiration of my journey. And I decided to then, after I finished my last, you know, engagement with the, the Paralympic Games and the Olympic Games in 84, I decided that was the time to transition and bring people together and uh, prepare to actually leave on the Man in Motion World Tour and try to wheel 40,000 miles, uh, you know, uh, or 40,000 kilometers, uh, you know, through 34 countries and and see if we could actually raise money and uh, and build awareness and, and just try to make a difference for that period of time. It was a crazy dream and it's a good thing I didn't realize what we were getting ourselves into because uh, it all, all hell broke loose from the very first day we left on that uh, Man in Motion Tour for sure. So getting to that waypoint, like where you, you embarked on that journey, was this a vision of yours? Like, you know, you, you talk about wrapping up your Paralympic career. Was it a vision where like, hey, this is what I'm going to do? Or was there people inspiring you that, that said, hey, can you, you know, what about this? Or, or, you know, talk about the evolution and what led you there. Yeah, it was an organic thing. First of all, when you're laying on your back, uh, you know, a hospital bed, wondering about your possibilities, you're, you're putting 
putting pieces together and test testing old dreams and goals. And one of them was, you know, the outdoors and, uh, you know, there was sport. And and then the other was because I was an adventurer. Uh, I, I I always was on some adventure. All my buddies were going, oh, my gosh, what's he going to get us into next time? And, and uh, of course, it was an adventure that got me into the, into the situation uh, as it was. And I was thinking about this uh, goal that I had, you know, a dream that maybe one day we'd bicycle around the world uh, with my buddies and, you know, ha- be on the grand adventure for a couple of years somewhere, you know, after we graduated somewhere, you know, when, you know, they had that magic space before having to go back, you know, and go into a workforce and get family and stuff like that. So it was uh, a grand dream, but uh, then I was thinking about it and wondering, maybe mm, it seemed pretty impossible at that stage. But as I got into Paralympic sport and into wheelchair marathoning, it uh, it actually started to have some possibilities in my mind. I thought I could actually physically do it if I ever wanted to. But, you know, you're in the peak of your athletic career and it takes some extraordinary things to impact you. And for me, um, I was uh, part of this uh, really magic uh, wheelchair basketball team, this dream team of extraordinary characters and one of them was, uh, you know, uh, Sam Strong, uh, and he was our manager. And what he did is he he tried to always instill in us a, a sense of not just taking from the team, but giving back. And he asked me to recruit. And uh, and so I was out one night at dinner, and someone told me about this guy who lost his leg to cancer. And, uh, you know, he was up at SFU. He used to play basketball. And so uh, I got his name and called him up, and his name was Terry Fox, and he was – struggling at the time but he hopped into the gym and you know he got into one of those chairs and was pretty slow and (laughs) not not very strong because he was still on chemotherapy but you know the passion in his eyes and uh and you know you could see the basic skills and we really hit it off you know i was at ubc at the time in phys ed and he was in human kinetics at sfu we trained together competed together roomed together traveled together and uh yeah he was a dear friend and you know, when he was inspired by our team and Stan and others to do his Marathon of Hope, I, I saw in his journey something different. Um, you know, he was focusing on cancer research and curing cancer, but people were starting to talk differently uh, about the potential of people with disabilities. They saw ability in what he was doing. And then all of a sudden I realized that, you know, this dream of wheeling around the world, you know, could have a purpose and uh, and could be my opportunity to pay it forward and say thank you and uh, and to try to bring others together to be part of that journey. So that's when it all started to come together. But even still, it wasn't, it was like such an enormous undertaking at a time, you know, in, in 84, when you're kind of really starting to talk about it, but actually making it happen, bringing the team together, connecting 34 countries and four continents with a message and generating resources here in Canada. Um, yeah, so it, it really wasn't until I realized that Expo 86 was coming to Vancouver and and they had an off-site promotional program. And I thought, well, oh my gosh, these guys could be sponsoring us and that would be the perfect opportunity to give us the, you know, the horsepower to be able to pull it all together. Of course, Expo did support us, but they cut their budgets back and, and uh, they gave us uh, in-kind support. But by that time, we were fully committed. And and uh, we realized quickly that we were just going to have to grind it one person at a time, one supporter at a time. And But by that time, we were already out there, made the commitment. And uh, literally, at some point, the window of opportunity 
um, kind of starts to close and you either you either say it's time to go now or it'll just be one of those things, a never ending pursuit of planning and never getting it right enough to start. But we had to actually start. And uh, and that was the key. That was the magic moment almost uh, 28 years ago, uh, 38 years ago today. Uh, you know, we, we left Oak Ridge Mall and, and, and that was the hardest part of the whole journey, just getting to start. Well, and I understand too, there was a lot of challenges. And I remember reading, I think, somewhere along the way in that first couple of months, you know, you were looking at it, you're doing the math and you're like, you know, this this first tour, we're going to make like $25,000. Like, it, it, you know, you, you're, you and you're looking at it like, it really is it worth it. So, you know, what, like it ended up being, what did, what is uh, the Man in Motion tour? What did it raise eventually, Rick? Yeah, just not too far before when we left, we had a, goal of a million dollars and we were struggling so much to start and of course we were awareness was our primary goal but that's hard to measure and so someone talked us into the fundraising and and then they said uh, you know like yeah um million dollars that, that that sounded good but it was so hard to start we thought heck let's put put let's up the goal to 10 million dollars uh, and then that would be worthy of the, of the of the challenge and yeah at the end of the day we raised 26 million dollars uh, we came back and, uh, and and then eventually established our foundation, started putting interest out every year with good interest rates and, uh, and you know, really uh, started realizing that all that effort had not only created awareness and started a bit of a movement, but but now we had a tangible force for change in our foundation and uh, it would become the ultra marathon of social change, uh, not just the tour, but a life journey and and a legacy that so many people contributed to and so grateful for the amazing team we had that, you know, that came together and uh, made it happen. And, and of course, all those that have been still involved over all these years today. Yeah. Incredibly inspiring. And, you know, I mentioned this before we jumped on air, but uh, you inspired me. Certainly you mentioned Terry Fox as well. The two of you, I, I both, I, I was to see you both and watching you come through medicine hat. I think, I think it was in, I, I don't remember the year. Was it 86 or something like that? You came through there. Does that sound right? 87. Eight, okay. Winter right. of 87. It was so inspiring yeah. to see that. Yeah. And it was interesting. I was talking to my wife um, and I mentioned that you were going to be on the podcast and she was like, Oh my goodness. Like the Rick Hansen. She goes, I remember, you know, he came into the stadium and we we're just so like inspired it, you know, like literally sp- inspired millions around the world. So a phenomenal Rick, but can you talk a little bit about the journey? You said, kind of the hardest part was starting on that journey on the man in motion tour, yeah. but it, it couldn't yeah. have been all gravy days. There was probably some pretty challenging days that you went through during that journey. No kidding. Like leaving the Oak Ridge mall when we left the parking lot and there's like 200 well-wishers and most of them don't even think I can complete the journey and they're encouraging us. And I go through the parking lot saying goodbye to everybody, go underneath this tunnel the motorhome and the guys are tired and they put this big wooden crate on the top of the motorhome and, and they're driving through the crowd to catch up to me and they go towards the tunnel and they hit an overheight warning bar that was warning them that now the vehicle was overheight. And so so they sent one of the crew members up to the top of the motorhome to lift the bar up that was warning them. That was the first <laughs> For a barrier that they overcame and they got back in the motorhome instead of turning around and finding a new exit they powered forward straight into the tunnel and boxes everywhere you know equipment right in front of those 200 well-wishers and they're going like this guy's going around the world in a wheelchair they can't even get out of the parking lot good luck he'll be back soon wow 
Oh man, phenomenal! Yeah, so uh, yeah, second day on the road. You know, we had planned it. Um, we were hoping to have you know still because it was spring, and we were originally going to leave on on March the twenty first, and we were going to have sort of the, still those northerlies coming down and get a little bit of a push down south along that uh, west coast to San Diego, but. Um, we we delayed three weeks because we needed to get a motorhome and and we weren't totally organized and so uh, that was our compromise. But when we left, the winds had shifted coming out of the south and still cold, like zero two degrees, sleet, rain, rolling hills down in Seattle. And by the time I got to you know Seattle, I was uh, a mess. I had uh, you know tendonitis of my uh, wrist and elbow on the right side and and I was uh, really in in some trouble. You know thinking like, hell, um, I've just started this thing and I'm already in trouble. I can't believe that, you know, uh, I, I'm going to be able to make this. But, you know, I had had a dislocated shoulder in a in a crash, you know, early in 84, testing a new wheelchair for my last, you know, wheelchair marathon before I transitioned into, into the Man in Motion Tour preparation. And my physiotherapist, uh, who really brought me back in time to win, uh, you know, that gold medal, um, she, uh, you know, she was amazing. And I, I, I asked her to, to come out on the road with me to fix the, the, the tendonitis I was having because we were about to encounter the Siskiyou mountain range between Oregon and, and California. It was about a 4,700 foot summit. And, uh, I didn't know if uh, I could handle it, you know? And so she came out and worked on, on the, the, the wrist and the elbow and, uh, got me settled and figured out, you know, kind of some of the things we were dealing with. And then we managed to make the summit and, uh, and, you know, it was like a huge triumph that meant, you know, she was uh, such an integral part of the success of our journey. Amanda came, uh, you know, back out on the road again, shortly thereafter permanently, because we needed that ongoing medical support that, you know, that physiotherapy. And uh, yeah, it turned out she was, uh, you know, thinking proactively being able to you know, start to, you know, um, ask people to go and drive ahead, record into a recorder to, you know, figure out the the mile kilometer marks, the, the the road conditions, the elevation profile, and and then that would all go back the incline and uh, and 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 the, and the actual altimeter, uh, you know, that would give us all those variables, be sent back to head or office. They would transcribe it into a manual and send it by mail ahead. But it would allow us to predict, you know, very accurately pace, um, you know, determine the, you know, the positioning of the of the chair and, and the wheels so that, you know, you could handle a steep uphill grade or you're into a flat or, you know, dealing with a headwind or a, or a tailwind. So it, it really helped to ever change everything for me physically, but also uh, for the organizing team so they could actually organize around that and get people involved and create events and yeah, so she was a heck of a difference maker, and uh, also eventually uh, we uh, fell in love and we got engaged, and I, I married her. So uh, <laughs> it was uh, one of the best outcomes of the Man of Motion tour for sure. That's phenomenal. Um, you know, I, I just think of this generationally. I think the, to do it today, it would be, you know, the logistics and just the the support, and even just I'm thinking about the, from a planning perspective, Google Maps and and everything. It's just your mapping systems, yeah. and yeah. Um, and I think that that and I want to talk a little bit about that in a minute about that generational aspect because 
things were very different 38 years ago than they are today. And, and, and also from an accessibility issue, right? And because of the awareness that this program and the Man in Motion Tour created around it, and others too, I'm not, you know, not exclusively, but... So yeah. the one thing I do want to talk to you about, Rick, is, um, you know, that first, I know the first little bit going down to the States, there wasn't a lot of fundraising. You were kind of going, oh, wow, we're kind of doing this. And it's, you know, this is hard. Um, you know, you had your goal of, I think you said 10 million. Um, and you're looking and doing the math and going, oh, what, what was the changing point? When did it, and because I remember you going through Alberta, you said you made $1.3 million. They matched or something in Alberta. So let's talk about what was the changing point um, in the tour? Yeah, I, I think there was, you know, for me, the, the critical changing point was, you know, we, a lot of countries, you know, particularly if they had a communist background, uh, you know, um, or a real uh, totalitarian approach, they, they didn't want to have this message in. So we were, you know, not allowed in East Germany at the time. We weren't allowed in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, well, we came into Russia for a little PR, but but not to wheel. And and uh, you know in Egypt, and we thought we would we would get the same response in China, but man, they said yes, come on in. And turned out that you know the son of the chairman uh, had a spinal cord injury, and and he was advocating for accessibility and uh, and rights uh, and spinal cord research in uh, in, in China. And he he had been given life saving treatment uh, by Canadian uh, medical support. Uh, when Pierre Elliott Trudeau and Deng Xiaoping had a, uh, a relationship. And, and so he was able to help save his son and he was truly motivated to, uh, you know, to pay it forward. And he allowed me to come in because he thought it would be really great to help get people to think differently about people with disabilities, not a ward of state, uh, a shut-in and embarrassment to family, but someone with ability that could lead and contribute. And uh, yeah, so they opened their doors and uh, it was it was an amazing turning point. The you know millions of people lining the street, a quarter of a million people in Tianjin, uh, wheeling up the Great Wall of China became like a, a symbolic, uh, you know, sort of uh, accomplishment to get to one of the highest points, and because people with disabilities never got onto the Great Wall, and and I, I think that that journey in the response of the nation in China and also its reflection back you know, to other countries, especially back home to Canada, really helped inspire people. And, uh, and actually that, that made a, a fundamental difference. I think things started to change. But even then, uh, you know, we still had trouble with the states when we came back home up the eastern seaboard. And, and I couldn't see how far down the horizon, how it was going in, in Canada and prep for my arrival. And I decided that you know, wheeling just up in uh, past northern Florida, you know, and, and getting into, uh, you know, uh, South Carolina, I was just thinking, it's just not happening. I'm done. I, I'm going to quit. Uh, I was so frustrated. I've been on the road for so long and, and it was so anticlimactic coming out of China and Asia. Uh, I thought if this is the way it's going to be uh, in Canada, you know, I'm going to have to wheel across Canada in the middle of winter and, uh, man, another like nine months and uh, just I'm done. And Amanda, she kind of sat down with me that evening and uh, had a tough chat. And she said, you know, I, I know you're tired, you're angry and frustrated and, uh, you know, and really disappointed, but you just got to have faith, man. You got to just hang in there. And if you can't believe, uh, you know, in the journey, believe in me and, and, and my faith in this, because uh, you don't want to have any regrets. Just let's just see how it goes just around the corner. And uh, and so I, I was able to, 
kind of talk myself back off that limb and uh, swallow my anger and pride and uh, and say, yeah, let's just stay stay focused, see where it goes. And just almost like a miracle, um, when we got into New York, uh, we got a, an interview with Brian Gumble, and uh, and you know this is on the Today Show, and and he gives us this great interview and. And we had, you know, a little McDonald's patch from our sponsorship at Nike. And and just so, so it turns out that George Kohan, the, you know, the founder of Nike Canada, is is sitting back on it. And it turned out to be a, a long weekend Monday uh, in August and in Canada. And then he was watching this feature and he goes, what are we doing for this guy? And, uh, and man, this is inspiring. And so he and thousands of other Canadians kind of got involved and, Michael J. Fox came out and, you know, and, and encouraged us. I got a chance to meet Bobby Orr in, you know, in my, my hockey hero in Boston. And, and, uh, and it was like these Canadians started rallying and, and, and saying, you know, we're with you, Rick. And by the time we got back to St. John's, Newfoundland, it was a whole different story. And Amanda was right. Um, I just, uh, I look back on it. And I wonder what, might uh, not have happened uh, if she wasn't there at that pivotal, pivotal moment. Uh, phenomenal, incredible, amazing story. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the changes. So you talked about the Man in Motion tour was mostly about awareness. It was that's what it started out. It was all yeah. about you know accessibility and having people understand. But of course, it's growing. It, you know the foundation and and the money and and everything. But what changes have you seen? I guess we talked about this generational. So, what have you seen over the thirty eight years since you started your tour to today, and or even before that, from your your injury first happened? You know, what what kind of yeah. what have you noticed that, with regards to that? Well, when I was struggling with it, when I I, I had the typical biases of uh, of the average Canadian. Uh, at the age of 15, that if you had a disability uh, in that era, you were, you know, in trouble. Uh, you were to be pitied. There, there was not a lot of opportunity. And uh, and so I had to sort of overcome that stereotype. And right around that period of time, uh, people largely thought of disability as a charity. Uh, and, and we didn't have any human rights uh, embedded in uh, the Canada that we want. It wasn't until, you know, the early 80s when we brought our constitution home and uh, our Charter of Rights and Freedoms started to talk about the kind of country we wanted, that it explicitly said that we want people with disabilities to be treated as equals and, uh, and, and to have access to our society and be part of it and contribute to it. So that was a huge aspirational turning point. And, and yet still, you know, we had to keep working on awareness and, and, and we had to keep breaking down barriers because people were having trouble entering society, you know, going to university or, you know, getting a job or being a, a contributing member of society or, you know, getting past the, you know, the view that it was uh, just a person in a wheelchair trying to get access to society. And and so those rights were established, uh, you know, in our country, but we, we didn't have any legislation, you know, that kind of backed that up. And, uh, and so our systems were very volunteer and, and, and sporadic. And so 30 years later, you know, a lot of people started embedding uh, legislative you know, uh, approach in provinces, Ontario, Manitoba, Nova Scotia, and uh, of course now uh, BC and 
soon to be Alberta, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador, a lot of a lot of provinces, the federal government, you know, a few years back embedded legislation. And so that's happened. And but what's happened beyond that is is the progression as people have realized that disability, you know, is is people who have visual challenges or they're blind or loss of hearing, hard of hearing or 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 deaf, or they have mobility challenges. Some are are visible and others are not, not all in wheelchairs you know, and someone, you know, just having pain and uh, arthritis or, you know, having a uh, stroke or, arthritis, you know, all these things that typically uh, are a mosaic of challenges. So that the demographic of disability uh, is quite massive. I think people are starting to understand it's 22% of our population and it's aging baby boomers. And, uh, and that's growing exponentially. 1.3 billion people on the planet living with a disability, the largest minority in the world. And so that's a, that's a huge awakening. So we, we now are firmly embedded, you know, in our awareness about human rights. Uh, we still have obviously charitable, you know, uh, focuses and concerns as a nation as we should, but also what's starting to happen is this economic and cultural value proposition. People are realizing that, that if we don't become accessible, it's, it, we're going to lose out on our economy. We're not allowing you know, a, a huge workforce to be part of the, our economy. We're not serving customers, um, family and friends and community. We're not providing the products and innovation to, uh, to help that community kid out there and still live a fantastic life in spite of their challenges. And so that's kind of like, uh, you know, the triple word score in social change when you have charity, human rights and and economic and cultural value, it, it really, it really starts to accelerate. And I think we're at a tipping point coming out of COVID, where um, you know there's lots of energy in this field. And, and if you look at tourism alone, anybody who's in uh, you know the you know the trying to bring people from across Canada and around the world to their tourism uh, location, whether they're in the outdoors or uh, you know in an urban environment. If they're not thinking accessibility, they're missing the fastest growing segment of the tourism market on the planet. And in uh, Canada is one of the best places to visit and to be part of, you know, uh, uh, in the world. And, and, and we have such beauty to share. And, and if we're not accessible, like uh, shame on us, you know, we're missing such a huge opportunity. So it's really it's really starting to shift. And I think our, you know, to your point about generational what we're finding is youth are growing up, uh, you know, in schools and in society and with their families and their values are starting to, um, you know, be much more fundamentally uh, front of mind when they when they make financial decisions to shop or when they're voting. And uh, and that's really uh, going to be the next generation of uh, normalizing this issue. I think people are often shocked that we're still not there. Uh, we still have a big hill to climb. We've come a long way. But uh, once they're aware, they go, hey, let's let's get on it and let's fix it. Yeah, truly inspiring. Now, when we look at your foundation, the Rick Hansen Foundation, I think you're 35 years old now. You established in 88, I believe it was. Um, what What is the core focus for, for the foundation? What do you guys, is it awareness? Is it is it legal change? Is it, a, you know, facilitating, you know, change in workplace? What, what are the main tenets that you guys kind of focus on as a foundation? Well, we still have the two big dreams that we pursue as our priority. One is, you know, to make the world accessible and inclusive for people with disabilities. And then also that long-term 
generational approach towards finding a cure for a spinal cord injury. And, uh, and so those, uh, those two strategies uh, are, uh, are fundamental in our organization. We help to put, uh, you know, our, our goal is to put uh, people in play to solve big barriers and problems to be able to get to that vision. And that means uh, be able to come together to find solutions and then bring those solutions into life by uh, picking leaders, bringing uh, teams of people and resources together so that they can actually power up, uh, you know, outcomes that make life better, uh, that move the whole field further forward. And so on the spinal cord research side, we've built a global center of excellence here in Vancouver uh, called the Blessing Spinal Cord Center. It has uh, 300 of the world's best researchers and clinicians all working together with patients uh, and uh, with people with spinal cord injury. And they're connected to the world, speaking the same language and measuring the same things. So it's an accelerator and, uh, and it was defined by, by those same people who uh, wanted to be better. And we just basically are a catalyst for change. We have social innovation as our kind of DNA. And, uh, and on the accessibility side, well, we have three kind of core areas of focus. Continuing on awareness, we want people to really put disability and ability top of mind. Uh, understand how big the issue is and, and, and a, the potential inside every person if barriers are removed. But also, we have to focus on some key areas where we think we can really uh, power up some big change and, and the built environment, you know, the places and spaces that people live, work, learn and play, you know, is where the biggest demographic of people with disabilities are. And, and we wanted to normalize that and, and really start to see uh, every new building built to a gold level of accessibility uh, with the principles of universal and inclusive design, you know, for the most benefit for the most people with disabilities and others who benefit from, you know, smart design for moving, you know, equipment around or uh, safety or, you know, mums with strollers or whatever. And, and so LEADS uh, was an energy efficient rating system for buildings uh, back in the 90s, you know, to help people build buildings smartly and get industry fully prepared to build smartly. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it really transformed, you know, the, the whole, you know, it building industry, construction industry, architects, designers, uh, you know, government, city planners, they all, they all ended up uh, adopting uh, the same language and measurement framework. But in reality, uh, buildings are not built for energy, they're built for people. And so we decided to modify something of that nature and create a world-class standard about what a building should look like uh, be, to be functional uh, and, and then to build a curriculum and train people in the industry and who are everybody who touches buildings. So to, our goal is to get hundreds of thousands of people around the world, uh, be able to have the criteria and qualifications to be able to build buildings right and, and then to rate them and measure them so that they can report out on where they are. And, uh, and ultimately, then customers and employees will know, you know, uh, what's accessible and what's not. And then when someone asks you the question, how accessible is Canada? We might actually be able to answer it, <laughs> at least in one dimension. And so that's a huge movement-based transformation. And uh, thanks to, again, a lot, of, a lot of really smart people who got together and came up with a solution and then we wanted to pilot it and uh, and now it's expanding across the country and around the world. That was kind of my next question is how are we doing in Canada? Are we doing a good job or do, you know 
do you like where we're at or do we have a lot of work to do? How do we, how do we rate? Yeah, you know, that's the point is we don't right yet have enough data points to be able to actually create that index where we can report back on the state of affairs, state of the nation on accessibility. And when I talk to leaders everywhere, whether they're in the private sector, in government, uh, social sector, there's no sense saying that you want to be accessible uh, or inclusive if you can't measure it. And so let's create, you know, and, and also measure it against, you know, you know, a more, you know, uh, kind of harmonious national or global context because people with disabilities, they, they don't know these little pockets. They, they move around like everyone else. And, and so you want to compare yourself to the country or to the world, then uh, we need to have the same framework. So that's the key is to start getting those metric frameworks in place, whether it be for employment, whether it be for accessibility in the built environment, transportation, communication, uh, there's a whole range of, uh, of metric categories that you want to lay in. And then when people start reporting back on that, then you can start aggregating and, uh, and then reporting uh, on these uh, performance indexes. And that's ultimately where we need to be for the next 30 to 50 years. I mean, it's hard to believe this year is 50 years since that accident. Uh, and uh, a lot has changed that we should be proud of, but, you know, we still have a long way to go and setting the scaffolding for the future to take that knowledge out of the just the, uh, the arms and, and the hearts of people with disabilities and their advocates into mainstream society and getting all of us moving together towards solutions is going to be the accelerator that I've always dreamed of and I couldn't be more motivated for the future. That's really inspiring, Rick. Now, when we look at Canada and the Rick, Hans Rick Hansen Foundation and the great work you're doing, uh, is there more work being done outside our borders? Are there other foundations? Uh, and I, I have to admit, I'm really naive on this, but when you, I, I would presume, like in you know Western Europe and certainly the U.S., there probably is. But you know, in sort of underimpoverished countries, probably where they need it more, is there is there a movement of, abroad for that as well? Yeah, there's there's uh, some really awesome champions everywhere in Canada, internationally. Uh, you know, the, the Americans with Disabilities Act was uh, you know put in place by a group of real powerful advocates in the 80s that advocated and, and protested and demonstrated and war veterans that came back from Vietnam. And they they finally got President Bush uh, to be able to uh, enact this legislation. And that was in the early 90s. So that really had a transformational change in the states in certain areas, brought it up to uh, a really uh, amazing standard that uh, got us partway there. But uh, again, that was a a viewpoint back in the 70s and 80s when it was being formed and, and expectations and, and disability has changed and technology and the economies and societies changed. And so we have to keep moving. Um, Europe and the EU is starting to really look at uh, disability and there's lots of uh, incredible champions in different countries throughout Europe. Major games that have been Olympic and Paralympic games that have been hosted in countries around the world really brings attention to accessibility and and, and people go, uh, you know, really hard at, at preparing to host the world and, and show and showcase their progress and their hospitality and their shared values. And, and then, of course, in the UN, they've uh, declared a, 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 a convention, a charter for uh, the rights and freedoms of uh, people with disabilities. And pretty much every country in the world has signed on to that and, and they report back on their progress. Uh, and that's, uh, that's an important indicator 
Also, in their sustainability goals, they realize that it's a, a big part of financial and environmental sustainability. And so disability and inclusion has to be part of that. Otherwise, we will falter. We need everybody on board and working together. And those are really uh, powerful examples of you know, an international community. And I, I, I think the biggest thing that's happening to date that's accelerating progress is you know, the digital world. You know, here we are able to communicate, uh, you know, from different parts of the province uh, and, uh, and and to places all around the world. And we don't need to have a crazy Canadian wheel around the world to draw attention to an issue or to work collaboratively on a problem or uh, develop a solution and implement it. It's uh, it's really inspiring to see how, how much is happening on the digital world. And I see work teams forming from all over the world and uh, and they're picking uh, subject matters and sharing knowledge and and synergizing and collaborating and adopting things so much quicker it's uh, it's quite profound and and then of course if you look at through covid how that impacted people with disabilities um, people with disabilities were negatively impacted by covid with all the restrictions and uh, you know you they require transport and attendant care and medical support and ultimately being able to, if they can, get to a job that was often restrictive. You know, you had to come to work. And some people, like a quadriplegic, would have to get up in the morning at four in the morning just to get ready to leave the door by eight and arrive at work by 8.30 or nine, depending on the transit, if it was ready. And then same thing coming back and then another three to four hours to get back you know, and, uh, and, and get ready for bed. And it's like... Um, that's a massive double handicap when that same person could be online working professionally uh, and effectively being on a top performer free from any limitations and doing an outstanding job. So COVID kind of accelerated that remote work opportunities, tech-based, and I think that's had a powerful influence as well. Yeah, fascinating, Rick. Um, there's so much more. I'd love to talk to uh, that, but uh, I want to segue a little bit into the conservation field and you know, inspiring enough as it was of all the work that you've done around accessibility and disabilities, um, you know, even more so now, you know, you, you were a founder of the Fraser River Sturgeon Conservation Society um, and the great work that you've done for conservation. So uh, maybe let's go back to those formative years again and your connection to the outdoors and, and why it's so impactful and important to you now. And I really want to dive into the sturgeon aspect of it because I know it's near and dear to your heart, clearly. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I'll appreciate that. You know, basically having a chance to, you know, be involved in fishing and, and the outdoors, uh, you know, it, it makes you realize, you know, how lucky we are, you know, this, this abundance back in the 60s and 70s. And, and, and then, you know, as you stay involved, for me, fishing was a part of my rehabilitation. And, and then I started to bring people you know, in, into learning about our, our foundation's mission through networking. And, you know, they didn't know a lot about spinal cord injury or disability, but they they love fishing and the outdoors. And so I had a chance to share my passion with them and uh, and build incredible networks, friends, raise tens of millions of dollars for our programs. And, and it was uh, really wonderful. But through that, I also uh, realized, you know, that we couldn't just take and, you know, we got really uh, thanks to the great support of a, an amazing organization, the Langara Fishing Adventures. Uh, they, the Langara Lodge in, uh, in Haida Gwaii was 
an incredible host for a lot of years and and they they basically helped us make their lodge accessible but they were very involved in salmon conservation and so we introduced catch and release and tagging uh, you know so we were tagging and, and part of a monitoring program fish that were were captured uh, you know and, and harvested uh, DNA was taken for you know for DFO sampling and and uh, you know and, and so that really helped me realize that yeah this is important you know you can't can't just stay in your pocket and it was a passion so I thought mm, you know maybe I get more involved in leadership and uh, and then you know there I was looking uh, you know through the maternity window my first born baby daughter and uh, you know just thinking and dreaming about it, her future and right beside me was a guy named Wayne Yamuchi uh, he was looking through the window at his firstborn son and we were just chatting and talking about our kids and their future and you know what we were most uh, excited about and I was saying you know to try to help get them out into the outdoors and hopefully fishing and he goes oh yeah he says you love fishing I go oh yeah and he says well what about sturgeon have you ever have you ever fished sturgeon I go sturgeon I said I've, I was kind of raised in Abbotsford and Williams Lake and I kept encountering these fish and they're like uh, these dinosaurs and uh, and I'm really really keen on learning more and he says well I know this guy named Fred Helmer He's a guide in Chilliwack, and he's been on the river for 30 years. His dad used to commercially fish the fish, and he's now introducing catch and release and changing the industry. And you want to go out with him? I go, sure, let's do it. And so I went out, and and Fred gave me uh, a narrative of the fish and, uh, and a deeper appreciation, you know, this apex species connected to a vibrant and healthy Fraser River and so dependent on salmon and and almost everything that is in there, the quality of the water, and uh, and ultimately uh, the vulnerability that they have to harvest and other other things, and and I sort of was quite activated by that story and wondering, hmm, how are they doing? And a few years later, during '93 and '94, there were two hot summers, and there was a mysterious die-off of these big mature broodstock. And uh, no one, no one knew why. Uh, these were like eight to fourteen foot long sturgeon that were washing up on the banks of the Fraser River, you know, during those those two years. And some people were saying, "Oh, it's just a natural cycle." Other people were saying they're they're on the verge of extinction and everything in between. And so, I just thought, well, surely they must they must be able to tell you how many fish are in the river and what their status is. And uh, I think the government of British Columbia at that time had spent $5 million trying to get some sense of population up to that period. And, uh, and they still didn't really have a clue. And uh, it was too costly because they were paying biologists, you know, and, and angling guides for their net unit time and, and then paying all these scientists. And, and, and it was just too prohibitive, too big of a river, too many variables. So I thought, well, what if we formed a sturgeon conservation society and we took a look at this? And so we did. We got some folks together, First Nations, commercial fishermen, sport fishermen, scientists, government officials, and business folks, and got them all together. And our first priority was, yeah, we think we can go at it differently. And we think we can actually sample the population with a high degree of confidence if we use people who were on the water connected to the fish you know, using that passion, that volunteer commitment, that scientific technical stewardship and using some uh, infusion of some, uh, you know, a variety of capital sources. And so within 10 years, uh, we were able to uh, 
amass enough tags and enough analytics to have one of the best freshwater fish population models on the planet and strong confidence limits would inform policy and uh, and also help settle people down in terms of knowing what was happening with the fish and and then hopefully direct people uh, where there were problems to countermeasures and be able to now measure success and uh, that's what we all want and uh, and if you don't trust data and if you don't trust where the state of the fish are and what to do everyone falls into their camps and they point fingers and they're prone to have arguments and debates as opposed to say, okay, that's what's going on with the fish. So how do we turn it around and let's get going? And that's sort of what's happened to date. It's been 25 years uh, since we've established the Sturgeon Conservation Society. I've built the organization and into succession with a, a great chair in Robert Ryers and a wonderful board of directors, a great science and tech team. Uh, the good news is that we have, uh, you know, again, this ongoing monitoring program that, uh, you know, that talks about the status of the fish. But the bad news is, is that the fish are going in a very complex way, the wrong way over time, and they're declining about one and a half percent per year. And, uh, and within 50 years, um, we know we no longer have a wild white sturgeon population here, the last wild white sturgeon population on the planet and that's not acceptable. So we have to get urgent in our countermeasures. So have you guys identified the primary cause of the decline and, and what can we do to, to, to support that trend from going? Yeah, we did a, we did a, big, uh, a big dive into that. There are a lot of experts who spent a lot of time doing a report. And, uh, and of course, if you think about apex species, you, yeah, you look at the population profile, the pro profile shows that the good news is that our, and this is where people think that the fish are, if they're on the water, they think the fish are in good shape because they'll see more big fish uh, available over the last 25 years than they have, you know, uh, you know, in a long time. And that's because, you know, no one's harvesting them. They've been protected and, uh, and, and all the over harvesting has been stopped and it's taken all that time for a broodstock to kind of recover and uh, from that big die off. And that's good news. But the bad news is that you should see correlation to that, you know, sub-adults uh, and, and juveniles also starting to power up. And, and what you're seeing is sub-adults going down and juveniles going down inside that cohort. And that, that's, a, that's a big alarm bell. And, and, the, and the brood stock will peak, you know, around 2025, and then it will start to go down. And so if you understand apex species in the Fraser River, the, 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 two, the two biggest issues are clearly the relationship with surgeon and food. And if salmon populations over 25 years have largely been trending down, then uh, food supply you know, for these big fish is going down and, uh, and ooligans have collapsed and other species are stressed. And so that's, uh, that's again, a big big warning bell so how can a big sturgeon put on 100 pounds of eggs or sperm you know uh, you know and getting ready for spawning if it's not getting the food that it needs and uh, and they can wait long periods so you know uh, the, if it's not the right conditions they might not spawn or recruit so we want to we want to talk with you know this is where sturgeon and salmon and uh, steelhead and uh, and other uh, conservation efforts come together we're going to talk about you know harvest technologies that and regimes that basically allow 
for escapement so that, you know, that there's enough fish in the Fraser River for everything and everyone. And, and it's not just in terms of as adults returning, it's the, the spawners that spawn and then they die and then they decay and then they fertilize, you know, the nutrient load in the Fraser River. And that supports micro life, which supports the little fry for salmon, for steelhead, for sturgeon. And, and, uh, and so that's a huge issue, probably the number one issue that we have to uh, shift awareness and, uh, and consideration. And if you take all the nutrients out of the Fraser River, you know, it, it's, it's like trying to farm without fertilizing. Eventually everything collapses and it's done. The second priority is, is habitat. You know, the Fraser River is in the lower river is bounded by uh, dikes. And, and ultimately, we don't have a lot of new habitat able to be created. And so we want to be able to protect the existing spawning and rearing habitats by doing sonar and then gravel matting egg testing. We can actually uh, draw circles around the spawning sites and, and protect those sites and give the broodstock a chance. And that's super important. And, uh, and also reclaim some, maybe some lost habitat you know, with uh, fish gates on flood control, so fish can come in and out of habitat, maybe dredge some of the areas that have been dried up, you know, uh, oxbow corners uh, with sedimentation, and uh, look at uh, areas where maybe there's bark and other um, mud and things have covered uh, appropriate rearing areas. So there's ways you could actually help move together and repair sturgeon and salmon and steelhead habitat, and that's super important. So uh, ultimately, uh, there's also a third issue, which is the impact of fisheries, in particular uh, gillnets on, on the Fraser and in particular set gillnets are, you know, the most lethal. And when you leave uh, a set gillnet, you know, especially in the summertime and a sturgeon gets caught up, uh, you know, it, 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 there's a 30 to 50% mortality rate. And uh, there's about a th three to maybe a three to 5% mortality rate with drift nets and because uh, they're on the fish and then and then sport fishing has a marginal impact you know 0.01 percent but uh you know we still have to be careful of when fishing takes place and where temperature and spawning areas and uh and obviously making sure that there's no consequential impact on uh, a fish that wants to spawn but it maybe uh, gets the wrong signal after a couple of captures or something so just thinking about that whole paradigm and you know making sure the science drives it it's not ideological and and uh and if you sort of look at those three priorities i think then what will happen is uh if we can get uh first nations leading uh with government so that we're all in sync and and then we have the sport fishery and we have you know science and and ultimately uh, other fishers on on the uh, on the water industry together I, I really believe the Fraser River can, uh, you know, can still be that, you know, incredible, rich, vibrant, sustainable ecosystem. And these 20 foot prehistoric giants will still be there for the next thousand, maybe million years or so. And uh, show that we've uh, we've kind of paid attention during that pivot point where it could go both ways, which is over the next 10 years. This is the time. Oh, very interesting. Now, um, with regards, you talked about habitat loss. And of course, there's industrial development uh, on the Fraser, and we've heard a little bit about the heart of the Fraser. Is that something that the Sturgeon Conservation Society has been involved in? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, advocating uh, to anyone who will listen about how important it is to, you know, there's certain uh, pieces of habitat in the heart of the Fraser Islands and, uh, and foreshore that really do need to be protected. 
And, uh, you know, it depends on how you define heart of the Fraser, but, you know, from a lay perspective, from my perspective, it's around the Stave River all the way up to, uh, you know, close to Hope. And, and there's some uh, fantastic habitat that's still there. Um, but, you know, there isn't any more when it's gone. So being able to purchase and protect, uh, you know, land that's great riparian, uh, great, uh, you know, gravel habitat, uh, you know, that's where surgeon like to spawn. That's where, you know, a lot of salmon rear and spawn and, uh, and surgeon rear. So it, it's really important to, you know, protect that landscape and, uh, and, and make sure that people understand that this, this is, this is the heart of the recovery and the sustainability of uh, both sturgeon and salmon. Uh, excellent. Okay. Um, one thing I just want to touch base with uh, with you on, Rick, before we kind of wrap up here is just kind of, you know, you, you've got two great passions in your life, clearly um, you know, the accessibility issue and disability issue, of course, uh, and you've done so much work on it, but also on the conservation side. And these two, although we talked to them exclusively, they're, interde- they're kind of, uh, they're intertwined as well. So can you just give us a little bit of perspective on that and and what your drive is and, and what brings those two together is it your formative youth and the accident or you know i just kind of curious about that connection yeah I, I i once uh asked david suzuki when we were chatting you know like and you know we're both talking about our, our goals and aspirations and uh, and the future and frustrations and and uh, you know he was frustrated at the at the pace of change and 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 i and i said so am I. And I said, so how can people who care about an inclusive society work together with people who care about a healthy planet? And, uh, and, and, and so that question uh, has, I didn't get an answer. The answer was yes, they should, and, and, and they could, but in reality, um, what what's the answer? And the answer for me in the most fundamental sense, you know, to start with is our shared values. And to be really clear, I, I think if we care about healthy people, an inclusive society, and a healthy planet, uh, you know, I, I don't think one can can survive without the other. I think I think all three are fundamental, and if all three are adopted by people who understand, you know, that that we can model that in everything we do, then then we don't build barriers between these silos and force people to choose. And, and even choose inside of those silos, you know, in disability, you care about spinal cord injury, brain injury, arthritis, Parkinson's, you know, this and that, and cancer, heart, you know, stroke, it just goes on forever. And, and inside in, you know, health, you know, what do you care about? You know, uh, do you care about, you know, uh, uh, you know, hips or, uh, or spines or, uh, or hearts or whatever? And, and, and do you care about nutrition? Do you care about, you know, mental health, physical health? I mean, it's, forever and then the same would be for the environment do you care about the air the land the water do you care do you care about sheep or do you care about sturgeon or do you care about and i think we've reduced our our focus to so many uh micro components that uh you know that we're not really bringing people together to realize that well we need specialization and uh, and it's really important but at the at the at the tipping points we all need to come together and so for me, the easiest way to start that, you know, with a solution is if we make the environment accessible for people with disabilities, 1.3 billion people on the planet, and they get out of these, you know, sort of buildings, uh, you know, that are, that are, you know, an urban environment that where people aren't really connected, or, you know, in a natural way, and they can actually access the environment and see it, 
get into their heart, just as you, me, and so many others have, how can they not become champions uh, of, uh, of a healthy planet in whatever it is they choose? If they choose wild sheep, if they choose sturgeon, if they choose whatever, but they, they have that in their heart. And, and I think that there's a, a tremendous amount of progress that still needs to happen in a country like Canada. You know, we're like second largest country in the world, we're largest supply of fresh water bounded by three oceans and all this beautiful wilderness. And, and, and yet there's still so much struggle getting people, you know, out and in. And so I, I really want to see that happen. And, and ultimately, you know, I think, you know, with so many people who are watching this podcast today, they're, they're involved in the outdoors. They, they love, you know, they love conservation, you know, they love hunting, they love, uh, working in the uh, in the you know beautiful places, but you know there's great ways to be able to do that you know and 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 so it doesn't always take paving a, a road through the middle of a pristine environment to be able to make that happen. Uh, there's incredible ways to do it with people, with technology, uh, and with just good thinking and planning. And so uh, I, I can't wait to see how Canada responds to be able to open up its doors truly to the world, to one of the most precious places on earth. And by doing that, we help attract unbelievable support because then uh, the world starts to respond and says, you know, like, yeah, this isn't just a Canadian issue. If we all work together, uh, those sheep will be there forever. And what you guys are doing, you know, with disease mitigation and, uh, you know, and to be able to get people from around the world to support that and the science and the intervention is is super powerful and uh, and the enumeration so people trust where you know the assessments are and uh, and and good policy people will then realize that yeah wild sheep will be there for for future generations in these uh, majestic parts of our province or our country and and uh, and and that happens by breaking down the silos and giving people a chance to hear your story and experience that unbelievable thing that you all have as well so inspiring, Rick. I could listen to this all day. I, I love it. Um, so in closing, I guess the one thing, uh, if people want to get more involved and and the two, your two foundations, of course, the Rick Hansen Foundation, of course, the Fraser River Sturgeon Conservation Society, if they want to get involved, what can they do? And then what can they do? You know, there's the monetary aspect. Of course, that's important. We need to do that. But if they want to do more, what can they do more to uh, create awareness and, and support the, these two important programs? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. Appreciate that. You know, the first thing is that people can make sure that they're thinking about it, right? You know, that they're thinking about it because everybody has someone in their life, you know, uh, a, a grandfather, a grandmother, uh, an uncle, a cousin, a colleague, uh, someone in the community. If you're thinking about it, then you can actually put your time and your talent, uh, you know, to play and uh, and look in your local community in your own world and think, yeah, how can I be an agent of change to just bust down a couple of barriers and give people a chance to experience uh, something that's just unbelievable. And and then secondly, you can actually look us up at rickhanson.com. And, uh, and, uh, and so if you look us up, you can come in and see the work that we do, um, contact some of our folks. You know, we, we look for volunteers, we look for resources, partnerships are some of the most important part of the work that we do, and or just share some stories so we can actually amplify that you know, on our social media channels and, uh, and and talk about difference makers or people who have actually had barriers that still need uh, solutions to be channeled into. So that would be a, a real fantastic way to do it as well. And so 
from my point of view, uh, you know, I, I just think that we've got a, an amazing team, but we're a small organization. And if we can actually get more and more people involved, uh, big things will happen. Well, fantastic, Rick. I can't thank you enough for your time today and, and for your inspiration. And these these are two things that are both very clear, uh, dear, near and dear to my heart, sturgeon conservation, conservation in general, and accessibility. I grew up in a community. We had two young men that were disabled that had uh, um, very uh, challenges with, uh, they had an accident. They were both quadriplegics and they were very big part of our community. So, you know, we've been supporting um, your program for a number of years. I grew up fundraising for um, spinal cord research and just want to thank you for all you do and, and just let you know that uh, you've really made a difference in my life and, and I'm really grateful for it. Well, modern thanks a lot, Kyle. Appreciate it. And it's just great to be able to chat to you. And, you know, we've got a lot in common and I, I really love the work that you and your team are doing and just keep it up. And of course, Anytime you want to come out and uh, and have a, an experience out on the Fraser, uh, you know, on Sturgeon, uh, give us a call. Uh, look us up on the Fraser River Sturgeon Conservation Society. We have an experience and education program, and uh, we have uh, an Eco Heroes initiative where we're trying to get youth engaged. And it's uh, it's really a fantastic thing. Uh, and ultimately, by learning about sturgeon, it also powers over and connects to the you know Pacific Salmon Foundation and all the great work they do, and uh, and Steelhead Society and others. So. Uh, the way I see it, we're all on the same journey, and uh, and uh, thanks for helping uh, share that story.